Welcome to Inside the Four Walls. Sports nutrition, active nutrition, and lifestyle nutrition is our world. It's changing, it's adapting, and it's evolving at a pace not many of us had anticipated. And we want to know more. I've learned over the years that some of the best insight is derived through conversation. And if you truly want to understand the dynamics of the market, you need to look beneath the surface. You need to ask those from within. So that's what we're doing. We talk to people from within the industry, those that have opinion, those that have been at the coalface, and those that have been there and done it. So buckle in and enjoy the ride. I'm Nick Morgan, and this is Inside the Four Walls. Welcome to episode one. We went all I hope to start as we mean to go on. Today we have Gareth Stone, a managing director at Houlihan Loki's Consumer Food and Retail Group. And do you know what? I don't know anyone better to start the podcast off than Gareth. He's both been buyer side and seller side of some of the most important financial deals in this industry. And he knows exactly how this market is evolving. So you get a great view today from Gareth through the lens of the investor. So enjoy, listen, and of course, learn. So guys, brilliant. Thanks for joining us. Um, episode number one of uh, Inside the Four Walls. Um, you were my first choice, just so you know. Very kind. Nice yeah, to you get not too many people give the same the level of insights that you are prepared to give, um, and have seen so many deals and transactions. I suppose from within the within the four walls, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to start by asking you because I know you've got some strong not strong opinions, but well described opinions on I suppose the outlook for sports nutrition. We're heading heading very quickly towards the end of twenty twenty, and I suppose everyone's interested to know what the outlook looks like for twenty twenty one. Um, I suppose that would be a great place to start, really, to get your views on on, on how you think that looks. Sure, sure. Well, I, I think the, the the first thing to say is is that um, you, you probably need to sort of chop the market up into a number of different sub definitions because they probably each of them have have slightly different trajectories, but both in how they've gone over recent years and and, and how we would see them evolving. Um, so I think we would probably have a, a, a broad definition of it and then cut that down into three. So the, the, the first third would be what one might call traditional, you know, hardcore sports nutrition, bodybuilding, elite athlete, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, which was where everything started. Um, and then probably the, the, the middle bucket I would call more um, performance nutrition for the mainstream consumer. Um, so, so that's more the, 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 the average Joe that goes to the gym, um, maybe does a, a, a triathlon or a tough mudder every now and again, um, or indeed just wants to, to work out to look great on the beach. Um, you know, so, so people that, that can see the benefits of performance that um, the products give them. And then there's probably the, the other end of the spectrum, that the third bucket that maybe more difficult to have a name, but whether it's lifestyle or, um, or, or, or just really health and wellness, where you've had the evolution of a bunch of the, 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 the product categories, um, you know, thinking most obviously of the, the, the high protein, low carb bar sector into to being you know, more akin to healthy snacking, better for you confectionery, et cetera. Um, and, and I would still see that as part of the same continuum, but each of those areas have, have kind of three um, very different prospects. So m- maybe just to, to start with the first one, 
the, 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 the traditional sports nutrition, you know, people like SciTech, people like Maxi Muscle, um, Multipower, you know, frankly, those guys have, have been having a difficult time. You know, as, as you may know, we, we sold the SciTech business earlier this year, and it's fair to say that that was not an attractive investment for the, the, the firm that bought it a few years ago. They made a heavy loss. You know, the, the business had been declining top line for many years um, and was not profitable. The, the same had happened at Maxi Muscle, and the same had happened at, um, at MultiPower. So, um, I mean, what, what's the lesson there? If, if you focus just on the the old hardcore bodybuilders through the the specialty channel of small shops or the, the the specialist online retailers, that is not a growing market at all. If anything, it's shrinking. Um, so it, it, it's not growing because there's a limited number of people that see themselves um, in that you know, kind of oiled bodybuilder view. There are a limited number of people that identify with that. That's not growing. Um, and even if people that do identify in that area, um, they, they need large amounts of protein and other powders, which they're getting much more cheaply online from my protein, etc., than they were from the other brands. So frankly, I think that is a very, very challenged sector. So if you're a, a brand um, in a big black tub and your image is a, a man or woman with a lot of oiled muscles, I think you have a very, very difficult time ahead. Can they do anything? Can they, can they rebrand? Can, can, do you think or have you seen brands genuinely transition from that space? None that I can think of. I mean, obviously, Matt Maxi tried, but stretched the brand quite far and kind of fell between two stools. They were never really accepted by the fully mainstream consumer, and they lost legitimacy with their original fan base. SciTech never tried to expand out and have collapsed. Um, a multi-power kind of like Maxi. I feel like the interesting discussion is that the... the the strategies go like it's broaden the, the retail channels, go into grocery or into convenience. Um, with that, change the formats and the format type, etc. I guess the question is that it all makes sense, doesn't it? And we can see that through all the other examples you'll, I'm sure you'll bring back to the performance for mainstream and the lifetime sectors. But it doesn't change the fact that can a brand change from where they actually currently are into into effectively a, a, a different level of acceptance. Um, and, and I suppose that's a fascinating challenge that a lot of those brands really do have. And I suppose as an investor or in the market is, is probably looking at quite in, in quite some detail. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I would have a fair degree of skepticism about the ability to do that. Um, and uh, this isn't um, particular to this industry. I think any brand that's been well-established across food or, or indeed other industries that mean something to a set of consumers to, to try to change that very fundamentally is a big job mm. a big job um so i i would i would be cautious about that i mean look w w whether you consider my protein having been a hardcore brand to begin with and then having broadened out I, th there's possibly a question around that um, but they were pretty, uh, pretty light and user-friendly brands even to begin with. Um, and I think that the brands that we would put in kind of the middle performance section, um, so look, people like PhD, um, who've done exactly as you say, move into grocery retail, move into convenience formats, 
you know, that they, they never really, even right at the beginning, had that hardcore feel um, because the, the founders clearly wanted to appeal to a mainstream audience and that was why they had the, the, the white and silver coloring rather than black um, and, and why they, they went for a name like PhD even though that wasn't the, <laughs> the, the original meaning of it, but to, to feel like it was a, a scientific um, brand rather than something for bodybuilders. So I, I, I haven't seen an example of it work unless you count my protein, um, but I think that I'm not even sure that really is a case. Um, so I, look, there, there will always be bodybuilders for sure. There will always be some people for whom um, those products are highly applicable. Um, but I would say it's, it's, a, it's a hard job. Um, I would say there are possibly differences geographically. Because yeah. I've, I've been focusing here particularly on Western Europe and North America. Um, I think if you take the case study of the guys at Biotech USA in Hungary, um, who the people that bought SciTech um, are potentially a counterexample to that. So if you, if you look at take Central and Eastern Europe as, as an example, it does seem that there is a greater degree of acceptance of um, harder imagery, if I can say it, not fully hardcore, but harder imagery that, that people are buying into um, and that are getting a broad repeal. Now, w whether that is a, a long lasting position or whether it's a phase and people will move into the much more mainstream thing, I, I think we have yet to see. But that's what we're observing in you know, Central and Eastern Europe, the Gulf, um, and to an extent, places like India. Yeah, I was going to ask, actually, because in some respects, there is a, there is a story to be told about SciTech, of which before that Maxi, of which before that EAS, perhaps, um, as to what extent that was um, you know, a barometer of something we needed to just be very clear about for that traditional brand, that it's very difficult and they're having hard times. Yet, SciTech were bought by, broadly, a traditional brand. But... I suppose what you're doing is you're sort of saying, actually just ring fence that because it is in this particular geography. And I suppose from our side, when we're not involved in those deals, I, I assume there's you know, a number of advantages for them tactically in terms of buying volume, buying retail channels, buying uh, consumers effectively to a degree. Uh, would that be right? Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it was around brand segmentation. That, that for example, I think that the SciTech brand does appeal to the traditional technical hardcore bodybuilder type it's got a great reputation there um and that that, that, that segment will always exist um and will be dedicated consumers of large amounts of, of powders um and whereas i think what what the the biotech owners are, are thinking of is is to gently make the biotech brand um softer and have a more mainstream appeal um and, and segment it that way. Whereas, of course, as we know, the products are basically the same um, across the chain, as therefore you have significant manufacturing and, and supply chain synergies. Yeah. So it is one way to go, isn't it? It's almost like building a portfolio. And I suppose the iconic case of doing that is, is Glambia Performance Nutrition, isn't it? With Optimum, Indeed. BSN, Nutrimino, and then with bars and so on. So in Indeed. some respects, then it's, it's just talent spotting, isn't it? It's talent spotting. You're finding the right brands who you feel have got legitimacy and legacy and, and so on. So, yeah. Exactly. Paper. Yeah. exactly. And, and you know, it, it, it's not a dissimilar thing to what um, SIS is doing with PhD. Now, SIS is a very strong endurance brand um, that the endurance consumers 
traditionally were not so interested in protein. Um, the protein consumers were traditionally not so interested in carbohydrate gels. But you, you know, to, to, to get scale in this market, you need to address different consumer needs. So very logical for SIS to buy PhD and to have very differentiated brands address different consumers. Differentiated in consumer needs and positioning, but actually the, the look and feel is actually not too different. It, it's for, you know, yes, a, a dedicated person who, who goes to the gym and works out, um, whether it's for, for cycling or, or for, for other reasons, but you know, a, a normal person that also goes to, to the pub and has a beer as well. Um, you know, so so I, I think it's, it's a very clever beginning of what, what I imagine will be a broader portfolio there of, of other brands to address different usage needs. Yeah. So you've got the, the traditional and the core, which makes sense. Segment one, it's iconic. Yeah. We remember it from the old school. The imagery is very distinct. We can name quite a few brands. Um, it's tough times. So I yeah. suspect any deals that you look at in this instance would probably be rescue deals or tactical deals or things where... You know, maybe it's geography specific in some form. I, I, I would say it's, it's geography specific. So um, very tough in Western Europe and North America. Yeah. So then um, um, part two, you described it, performance from mainstream. I'm actually still fascinated you put PhD in there to a degree. Maybe they're a hybrid between one and to the other in an opinion. But um, I, I take yours as is actually gospel. So performance from nutrition, average Joe, tough mudders. You, how would you describe those? You put PhD... How would you elaborate on that on that segment? Yeah, so I, I would say that the future there is still bright, um, that there is still a lot of, of volume growth to to go for, because that there are a lot of people that fall into the categories that, that do these things that aren't taking these supplementation. So but we, we've said for many years that the, the education is, is lacking amongst a broader consumer base. That, that's still the case. There has been a lot more, of course, but I, I think there does need to be continual education um, by brands like PhD as to the, the practical benefits their products can bring. Um, if that is the case, if, if that happens, then I think there is a, a very, very bright future for that part of the market, um, as long as they do a, a number of right things. So, so one I've mentioned is education. Um, secondly, investing in their brand to make consumers feel that it's a trusted brand, you know, no funnies, no additives, um, that, that they can be relied on to be pure and also do what they say on the tin. Um, so that, that's the second point. Um, third point is around um, convenience of formats. So as you alluded to, um, bars and drinks as well as powders. Um, now, they're never going to make up the biggest volume of powder sold to that group, of, sorry, of protein sold to that group because of the much higher price per gram of protein. But you know, that, that, that mainstream group isn't as heavy a user of, 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 of protein as, as the first group and therefore can afford to pay more um, for a convenient format, whether it's a bar straight after a gym or, or an RTD. Um, or you know, to take stuff on the go. Um, I, I think the, the, the breadth of formats is, is important there. Um, and then the last point is around convenience of channel. Um, so that the first point here being around um, more mainstream channels. So it's not just mass retail of the supermarkets. It's also drugstores like Boots. It's people like Holland and Barrett. 
um, in terms of physical retail. So, so they, those are absolutely key, both in terms of, of making the products available where people want them, and also in terms of giving consumers reassurance that if, if big brands like Boots and Sainsbury's stock them, that these are reliable and trustworthy products. So that, that, that will continue to be an important channel. So you had PhD in there. So I'm going to assume you put Foodspring in there, which is the one you know in, inside out. Is that what you, do you do that? No, I, I would put Foodspring very much in my third category rather than mm, in my middle. Okay, so let's hold that thought. So who yep. else goes in there alongside PhD, just out of curiosity? Well, um, SIS, um, you, you could query whether Grenade fits in that bucket or in the, the third bucket of, of, of lifestyle. Um, who else? I, mean, I, I guess of, of other UK brands, um, you would probably put High Five in there. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious. That I, I don't want to be seen to be stereotyping brands at all because I think it's actually a bad thing to do and, and, and to allow them all to be who they are, actually. So it's, it's just nice to give people maybe some contextual yeah. view. Um, just out of curiosity, though, you mentioned, do you think the Pareto of the sales will be more um, equal between the various formats? Because uh, the top the top the top group we discussed Pareto would be massively powder still no question and I, I, yeah. I haven't seen any examples to say otherwise I, I'm going to assume and rightly that PhD would still be the same although I know Smartboard is a big contributor um, to that but I could be wrong because I don't have obviously foresight to that is what's the Pareto sales do you think or broadly in general of the ones that you've seen in that bucket how much does do you think the sh there is a shift away from powders into the convenient formats I think that there, that there is definitely a shift ongoing to the more convenient formats. Um, I think that there was a, a big shift a couple of years ago. Maybe that has, has slowed down a little bit, um, obviously leaving COVID aside because that, that's kind of a different position. Um, but, and I think it will continue. No, I, I think powder remains by far the largest volume contributor, um, less so in terms of value sales, in terms of pound sales, because of course the, the price per gram or kilo of a bar is much more expensive than, than that of a powder. And then even more so on the bottom line of these businesses, the profitability of a convenient format will be materially higher than that of a, a powder product, where frankly, it's difficult to, to make money in those products unless you have a very strong and differentiated brand and proposition. Cool. Um, I, I, th I think that will accelerate. There will probably be a natural ceiling because, as I say, the, the, the drinks and the bars are, are a much more expensive way of getting your protein. And, and frankly, it's not all about protein, is it? That there are you know, other pre-workouts and stuff that, that are, are less well-suited to the convenient formats. Yeah. And the interesting thing is doing well but yeah separate. i think the interesting thing as well is the investment in brand um which which the original brands were not traditionally they didn't necessarily have to do that did they i think in the original market consumers were coming to them and just say why are you different from someone else now you have to do more convincing to the consumer which is a very different challenge and that inherently lies to the job of education doesn't it so to convince a consumer why you're relevant to them is a very different skill set actually requires a bit more money it, it's interesting marketing and I just I guess the challenge then is the type of people they have in the business the capabilities the skills the budgets etc and that must be a real challenge as well in terms of which brands you feel have genuine opportunity for growth it is it is it's, it's a very different skill set um, and I think there are two elements to it I and mean, one of course is education as you mentioned 
um, that the and the other one is around emotional brand loyalty. Um, if, 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 a, a lot of the the consumers who use these, these horrible expressions are are millennials or, or Gen <laughs> Z, um, and they to overgeneralize want to buy brands that they want to be associated with, that they feel reflect their lifestyle and aspirations and beliefs, as well as functionality, as well as tasting great. So, um, and that's quite some way from where a lot of these brands started. Um, but in investment in that brand personality, largely through social media, um, Facebook, Insta, Insta Stories, TikTok, um, all of that sort of stuff is, is necessary to build that emotional connection with the consumers um, to have them prefer your brand over others in, after all, what is a relatively commoditized product in terms of the protein powder um, and to an extent the bars that are manufactured in, in a small number of facilities. Okay, so segment three, well, uh, lifestyle. The, the, the last thing on channel yeah, go on. is around online. Yeah. Um, and because that, that's, that is the most convenient channel. It's cheap and it's brought to your door. Um, it, it has taken a large, a very, very large share of the market. What is it in the UK now? 50% online yeah. at least. Um, and continuing to do so in other markets. Um, and the, the most obvious case here is, is MyProtein, who, who've done incredibly well, who I would probably put in that middle bucket. But, but also, you know, it's not all about MyProtein. So other brands in the UK, like Bulk Powders, have done extremely well um, in growing in recent years. In, in probably, I would say, a more sophisticated brand proposition than MyProtein, a much more emotional brand proposition. Um, also in, in more interesting functional products rather than just big bags of, of, of powder. Um, so that they are growing extremely well. Um, and, and I would see that, that they will continue to do well and will probably continue to take share from brands that are focused on bricks and mortar. And that, that, that thing, sorry, comes on to the question of how, how or ca is it possible for a bricks and mortar original brand to move into online? Um, That's gonna be my next question because I think this is a really important one because it's not, it, everyone just assumes you can. And I think it's a very difficult thing, if not a completely different model. Um, not least in the number and the depth of the products that those two brands in particular that you mentioned offer. And then I repeat that with Prozis, Body and Fit. Yeah. Massive product ranges, huge. Absolutely. And then you, Optimum, uh, same Glambia brand or, or PhD, you're talking about 30 parent products, maybe 40. It's a totally different. So I, I was going to wonder, can they move online? Can people do that easily? Uh, it can be done, but e easily, I would say, is a stretch. Um, and and we, we have to differentiate here between online direct consumer through your own website and online through third parties. So Correct, yeah. all of these brands have been selling online since their inception, whether it's through people like Dolphin or, or, or so on. Yeah. Um, those third party specialist websites are having a super tough time of it um, because frankly, the consumers are questioning why they should go onto a specialized sports nutrition website when they can either go onto MyProtein or, or BarPowders.com or indeed onto Amazon. Amazon are finally getting um, their, their heads around the category. It's not with their own brand. They've tried a few products, they're terrible. Um, 
but they are doing well in terms of promoting other people's brands now. So you, you cannot ignore Amazon. You can make good sales, good growth on Amazon, and you can make good margin on Amazon. You have to, ju- you just have to treat them sensibly and have a good pricing architecture and have a, maybe a differentiated proposition in terms of bundles, what you do on your own direct website, what you do on Amazon, and what you do in, in physical retail. It, it's eminently possible. Um, you know, without wanting to use them as a constant example, what, what SIS and PhD have done over recent years, I think, is, is emblematic of that. You know, they, they share their results publicly, so you can see that the percentage of, of online sales of each of those brands has just gone up steadily every time that they announce results. And it's a mixture of their own direct consumer and of Amazon. So is it possible? Absolutely. Is it difficult and costly? Yes but it's necessary to be relevant to your consumer in the long term. Because your, your, your archetypical Gen Z wants to buy something wherever she wants, rather than having to be told, oh, well, you can only buy me here, you can only buy me there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, it's, and now more than ever, people are looking to move online. I mean, half the stores closed, didn't they? So in some respects, half the channels closed recently. So to move online is, an, is, a, is a, been a, if they were doing it, it was an important pivot that they needed to make in the short term. Absolutely. I, I guess the challenge to people is how quickly you can switch on an infrastructure to genuinely, um, I suppose, use it to your advantage. I mean, it might offset the sales you lost in the first instance, but then a, gen, a channel that you know, ultimately becomes very successful in the future. Do you think at that stage, you know, it's really going to challenge their supply chain and their value chain, um, and it's going to pr- move people more to vertical integration in some form if they can? Um, Look, it, it's not easy to do, and it's not cheap to do. Um, and just by trying it doesn't mean you'll succeed, because it, in the end, it's all about people. It's finding the right people to, to run um, your performance marketing campaigns. It's finding the right yeah. people to, to run your social media. And the, those people are few and far between, and they are expensive, and they are typically already in a decent job. Um, so luring them out of those is, is not straightforward. But it can be done. It can be. I, I, th- I think actually for those listening, um, it, it's just, it's such an important skill, isn't it? Whether it's the different type of advertising, the money you need to put behind it, even just managing the quality of your, your website, the interaction, the movability, the education on there. I mean, it's, it's a world in itself in terms of building a business. I just wonder if my protein and bulk powders are, 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 you know, are rubbing their hands on the basis that people are having to place more emphasis on it. But I just think the time it will take to catch up will, Will always enable them to to have that first mover advantage and they'll you know unless they do something ridiculous which i don't imagine they will they'll they'll always have that advantage i think that's, that's right? right i think that's right I and mean, look you the performance of a digitally native brand like my p like bulk powders um like esn in germany um and so on um is is very different from what you have if you're a bricks and mortar brand that is trying to sell your products through a new channel. Um, it, it, it's just a, a different way of doing things. But I'm, I'm, I remain a believer in the omni-channel possibility. If you're a bricks and mortar native brand, you can do it. Um, and, and even if you look at people like Prozis or Body and Fit that you mentioned, they started out as third party sellers of other brands. Um, But in particular, Prozis very cleverly over the years started their own brand 
turned off other people's brands and then brought their own production in-house. So, so they are now, as far as I'm aware, 100% own brand with a lot of their own manufacturing. And that was a journey that took them a number of years. Body and Fit have been, let's admit it, somewhat less successful um, at it as, as the public results from, from Glambia have shown. Um, but it is, it is the right direction of travel because it makes your consumer much stickier and should in theory give you higher margins. Yeah. Perfect transition into, into group three, lifestyle, Indeed. health, and, health and wellness. Indeed. Uh, go on. Give, give me so, the, so, give me the summary on that. So, so here, here I would put probably as, as a best example, someone like Foodspring, um, who, as you alluded to, we, we sold last year to, to Mars. Um, they started out being a traditional kind of bucket two um, performance nutrition business. It was about um, you know, doing better in the gym, but finding clean, healthy, better um, protein powders. And that, that was a foundation of their business. Um, but speaking to the Gen Z and starting online, what they quickly realized, though, is, is that... Um, you know, the, the Gen Z don't just want protein powders going to the gym, they want a whole lifestyle, whether it's bars, whether it's drinks, whether it's um, crunchy air-dried fruit, whether it's um, protein bread mixes, whether it's protein brownies, um, really focused around a holistic view of health and wellness. Um, yes, high protein is a key component. Yes, low carbohydrate is a key component but you know, selling cans of apple cider vinegar, for example, or, or other BCA type drinks. These are perfectly middle of the road health and wellness propositions. Um, and that was one of the reasons they, they were so successful growing so quickly and therefore became attractive to someone like Mars, that they, they stretched out of a, a performance nutrition birth to, to be multi-category um, have appeal across multiple geographies because, you know, frankly, the perception of a, of a Gen Z consumer across geographies is much more similar than it was of, of the baby boomer generation. Um, and so able to have that fully mainstream appeal. Do you, did they have an epiphany moment? Is their growth or is that transition gradual? I mean, it's not, it's not a massively long-term period of the brand. It's not been around for that long. So no, I just wondered whether there was a, I was average, average, no one cared. Oh, inflection point. I don't know the answer to that actually. Because of that transition or is that just a, was it natural to them that they just moved there and they were already on a curve, but then they, they managed to get more momentum? I, I, I think it was more of a nat natural movement. Um, that in, in the same way that when PhD was founded, whatever it was, 15 years ago, for, for that period, it, it was the most mainstream brand you could look at. Um, maybe 15 or 10 years later, when Foodspring was founded, that looked a little bit more functional and, and Foodspring was kind of the next mainstream level onwards. So I, I think it was just a natural evolution of, of where they set themselves out to be. And, and then maybe picking up on, on some other brands to give examples there, um, you know, I, I would hesitate as to whether to put Grenade in a Category 2 or Category 3. So they, they obviously started out being um, pure sports nutrition, you know, weight management, if you want to politely call um, their, their original fat burner product. Um, but with the, with the Carb Killer Bar, um, they became a, a, a consumer product. 
And so when, when we sold the business to Lion Capital three years ago, they were perceived as a consumer product. But they, they do have a legacy of sports nutrition. If you compare them, though, then to people like Fulfill and Bear Bells, who started a few years later, um, their positioning right from the go was better for you snacking healthy confectionery. So n n none of this sort of sports nutrition heritage. So, and, and they, they are growing incredibly quickly, more quickly than, than Grenade. Um, and indeed, Bear Bells is now bigger than Grenade. Um, so so that, that they are kind of the, 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 the next gen bars that are moving into to healthy snacking with the, um, the caricature here being not, a Bear Bells bar isn't, isn't eaten by a 20 something lad going to the gym. They're eaten by a um, you know, 25 to 35 um, female professional office worker um, instead of a snack in the middle of the afternoon. Again, overgeneralizing to, 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 to make, the, make the case. Yeah, I think one of the most important things for there for me is that, that I say it a lot, is that ultimately those brands that you just mentioned, Phil Bebel's, two good ones, ultimately have no baggage of sports nutrition, do they? They have no, they're not really ever been associated to it. I think they've got a cool active vibe to them. I can see how they're relevant to all these people, but ultimately they're, they're not stereotyped one. They have no previous traditional baggage to deal with, which um, I, and I, I don't know the extent to which that may or may not hold grenade back um, to some degree, but they don't have to do it. And actually that's always my biggest thing is the brands we hero sometimes as the ones of the future for a lot of the other sports nutrition brands, the difference is they're not, they never have had that previous tradition. So it's, it's like, it's apples and oranges, isn't it? In terms of comparison. And I just worry too many people hold these examples up and I think rightly to show the success they're having, but I just sometimes think everyone thinks they can achieve that, but forget the fact that they never actually came from that position in the first place. Um, Absolutely. It always brings me back to what the hell is sports nutrition anyway, which I know definitions is definitions and it probably doesn't mean that much really in the grand scheme of things. I just think it's important context or for people to be cognizant of that fact because it's important for tactical strategic decisions and they don't put a lot of investment in things I don't believe they have the permission to do. Absolutely. Personal opinion. Uh, food spring though, in this bucket, you've been quoted to me before. I think you still said that they sell a lot of uh, volume whey protein. So there is a mix of formats in this as well, though. You, you, you put food spring firmly in there and, and yet they are still a big driver of, you know, core products, but ultimately they look, feel as different and they have a bit more of a naturally proposition. Yeah. Do you, do you yeah. see that as a big component, naturally a vegan type, type option? So uh, natural is naturality is absolutely a key focus all, all across the food sector, whether it's human food or pet food or, or nutrition. That, that consumers want clean label. They want fewer ingredients on the label. They want um, ingredients they understand, um, and they want a look and feel of a product that that feels natural to them. But that that is all across the board, and that will continue um, continue to happen. Um, and there are also other trends like vegan, as you mentioned, which, which are here to stay. Um, you know, different people will have different views as to, to what percentage of, of the market vegan is going to get to, but, but it is here to stay. It'll be meaningful. You know, one, one will question whether one needs separate vegan brands like Vega in the States or, or whether brands like PhD um, or, or indeed... Um, uh, even people like Grenade or um, 
the, the others, um, bulk powders and so on, can do vegan themselves. I, I think there is enough brand equity in those brands to be able to do a large amount of vegan. Um, but I, I don't discount the possibility of having a, a separate vegan brand for people that are, are very, very, very um, focused on vegan as being more important than, than anything else. Albeit I haven't seen one succeed at any scale in Europe in the way that, that Vega did in North America. No, I don't, I don't think I have too. And um, in truth, there's basically a very straightforward uh, options to do it. You can do what my protein's done, which is effectively create, you know, an entire, you know, huge sub range, my vegan uh, bulk powders have done. Like, I think they effectively do their, you know, the big skews that mm -hmm. there's a vegan protein, vegan gainer, think of vegan pre-workout or some things. There's five products which they stipulate is vegan. Um, and then every now and again, someone just puts like a one vegan product in there and, and, and kind of hopes that it takes off. Um, yeah. I, I suppose in that sense, my barometer for success has got to be uh, my protein on the assumption that their data intelligence within their entire platform tells them exactly what people are looking for. So um, uh, I don't know it, it, right or wrong, but my assumption is that if my protein take that, that move, um, that their data is telling them that it's absolutely important to, to take that direction. Yeah, no, look, I, we, we, we as a house have done a huge amount in, in plant-based food. So we, we sold a, a Swedish meat replacer brand called Umph recently. We sold corn a number of years ago. The, 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 the whole um, uh, vegan, vegetarian um, trend is, is absolutely here to stay and it'll go across every category. Um, my suspicion in Europe is, is that it will be more um, having existing brands stretching out and having those categories rather than a separate brand. But I, I'd be happy to be proved wrong if, if a, a founder creates something um, that, that, that is purely vegan. And actually, that, that, that's maybe an interesting segue into another brand that, that I put into to my third category, which would be Huel. Yeah. Um, so it started out as a meal, as a meal replacing powder, now much broader product set, real lifestyle brand, all direct consumer, you know, vegan from the get-go, um, and a brand which is doing unbelievably well, you know, super high growth, mm. um, doing incredibly well in North America, which is unusual for, for brands starting out um, here in Europe, um, and, and really hitting that trajectory like Foodspring did of, of connecting emotionally with the consumers. And, and so every new product they bring out has got you know, a, a fanatical um, appeal to, to the consumers when it's launched. So one of the things I think is really interesting about Huel is it's almost like a reinvention, a reinvigoration of what a meal replacement is. I mean, I don't think they use those terms. I don't no, think indeed. people see it in that sense. It indeed. also has no baggage of sports nutrition in any way, shape or form. Um, but I had a, a conversation with somebody else about it. And I think what the beauty within held about that is a single-minded proposition. So that's a brand with a single-minded proposition to, I know they're different formats, but really very clear about who it is. And I suppose the original sports nutrition brands sort of do that, but they have such, they started to have a lot of diversification in what they started to offer. And I just um, wondered on whether you'll see brands pop up or have success in the future that kind of do a lot of different things you know, beside the ones that are already existing versus those now that will pop up that are a bit more single-minded. So I think Bear Bells is quite single-minded um, in terms of what they're doing. Um, and Huel is a great example. Is, is that, is, do you think that's a yeah, fair well, conclusion? I, I think there's, there, there's space for both. So you could almost put Huel and Foodspring at two opposite ends of the spectrum. 
so as you say, Huel very, very, although they do have different formats, very focused on, on their proposition. Whereas, you know, with, with Foodspring, as you say, you, you have, you know, pure whey protein powder in, in tubes on the one hand, um, and then you have air dried fruit on, on another. So that they, they have been very successful having a broad um, proposition of basically healthy living. Um, whereas Huel, as you say, is much more focused on functionality. And, but but bo both have space, but you've got to know what you are from the get-go and moving from one to the other is problematic. And you have to communicate um, what your brand essence is to your consumers so that they know what to expect. I, mean, I think if Huel came out with a crunchy fruit next month, I, I think there would be a bit of bewilderment and maybe a bit of a backlash from their consumers because that's not what they expect from the brand. Yeah. I'm interested, um, tracking into the US, but also now available over here in Europe is Ghost. Mm -hmm. um, I just wondered what your view is um, on, uh, on, on Ghost sort of lifestyle. Um, they did their recent sort of collaboration with InBev in the US, probably around their drinks. They do their big flavor collaborations as well um, in terms of bringing some differentiation to their, to their look and feel. Um, I just wondered if you you had a view on on on, on where and what they they look and feel like because um, everyone seems to be uh, excited about about them in some form. Yes, so so look, it's it's clearly um, a, a very interesting brand that uh, has got a lot of traction and, and has a um, a great deal of momentum behind it, um, and you know very clearly appealing to to, to Gen Z and to that sort of third bucket of, of completely um, you know, ma mainstream lifestyle consumers. Um, uh, I would question whether it's, it's, it's a very American positioning. Um, and if, if, if you look at both the, the look and feel of the brand and also some of the ambassadors and, and some of the way they talk about themselves, it, it is, a very American positioning. So I, I, I think the, the, the question is how well that um, translates into to a European context. Um, I think it's still very early days. Um, so I wish, wish them the best of luck. But I, I think that's, that's a challenge they will have. Um, because it, it's a very different sensibility to um, a Huel or a food spring, etc. And maybe there is an untapped part of the market that they will shoot the lights out in, but I think that, that would be really interesting to watch over, um, over the coming months and years. Um, changing tack slightly, um, we obviously talked a lot about the different segments and how you view it. I, I suppose just a simple question, how buoyant, I mean, from an investment point of view, how buoyant is it at the moment? Is it, is it kind of just on a bit of a pause whilst everyone works out what the hell's going on and People are trying to work out cash flows and all sorts, but I mean, from an, is it more buoyant now than it's ever been? Is it is it the same but different? How would you describe the buoyancy of the of the of the context of sports nutrition from an investment point of view? Yeah, so um, you know, from a um, financial investor perspective, any business that is on trend with good growth and either current or potential high marginality is fundamentally of interest. Um, and that applies to some, but not all of the businesses that, that, that we've been discussing. Um, and, and growth is probably the most imp important key here. 
Um, so, so fundamentally of interest, yes. Um, I, I think I would probably say the flavor of the month is online. So if, if um, I can oversimplify the lessons that some financial investors have learned out of COVID, it's that um, anything online is great because um, that, that, are where, that is where shoppers are moving to on a permanent basis away from bricks and mortar. Um, and secondly, that better for you, health and wellness, functional food, et cetera, is also a permanent long-term trend because of the very clear link between um, obesity and the, the death rate from COVID. So, so you know, very good fundamental trends behind these businesses. Um, but I, I would say interest is, is probably more focused around the direct consumer where you have higher growth rates, where you have um, a more intimate relationship with your consumer um, and where the potentiality for high margins is absolutely there, even if you're over-investing at the moment to, to support that growth. The over-investment being that therefore they're not necessarily currently profitable. Um, being some conclusion in that, I guess. It, it depends on what you define as profit. Um, so well, I'm just interested in this because, again, you know, most of the brands aren't necessarily may or may not be profitable at this point in time, but maybe what they're doing is demonstrating proof of principle. To consumers care about them and they want them. They've demonstrated it. Their you know, growth, so they're finding more of them. And that's ultimately what Absolutely. people are really interested in. Will that change, though, in the current climate on the basis that cash flow has really challenged the market recently? Um, and will that be something that brands will need to become better at anyway from the outset? From the outset. So yes, I'd, I'd, I'd caveat um, the way you described it with that um, the best brands and all investors um, have a very clear focus on what we call the gross profit level or CM2 in, in direct consumer terms. So the, the marginality after either production or, or buying in outsourced products and after delivery, logistics, and payment. So that, that, that is the key focus level for investors. Um, and if you have that at the, the right appropriate level, then investors don't particularly mind spending that margin on marketing growth um, overheads to help support the growth of the business. So for those high growth businesses, EBITDA is, is not the most important metric, although if you can be materially EBITDA profitable, that's even better, but, but it, it's not a necessity. But if you have a, a low gross margin, then um, you're never going to be able to move your EBITDA up. Because the, the view is if you have a solid gross margin, you can overinvest in marketing and overheads for a number of years. And then as, as you scale, your overheads as a percentage of turnover will reduce automatically because you don't need to recruit so many new people and you can dial back the marketing once your brand is established in the mind of the consumer so that you should be able to get to a, a good EBITDA figure. So that, that, that is a concept that, that is understood by trade and financial investors. Um, obviously more applicable to, um, uh, to, to online businesses and offline, but also it, it's a route that SIS have followed um, clearly over recent years without having a positive EBITDA but a good gross margin that their shareholders are, are very supportive of. Uh, what's your, um, one of the things that underpins brands from the, from the outset in terms of being successful is normally uh, great leadership but within that leadership is entrepreneurial ship, entrepreneurs yeah. 
um, empathy, um, people who, you know, they, they built the brand for them and therefore on the assumption that others would therefore must want it because they are the consumer type thing. Um, and when, uh, when a lot of these investments take place, a bigger corporate structure comes on. It, do you think they've managed to do that and still, do you think it's just inevitable you'll lose the entrepreneurial ship of those brands in those situations? And honestly, do we, um, do we think that those situations um, are just the, a natural course of action? And, and do they really take brands on? Do they really take brands on to another level? Um, I, I just, I'm just fascinated in that little thought, yeah. if that's possible. So, so look, the, 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 the industry is still relatively young and, and therefore we don't have many long-term examples of, of that happening. But, but it is very usual for um, young entrepreneurial brands to be bought by larger businesses over the course of time and, and to be integrated. So, so, so that, that, is, that is not at all unusual across the food spectrum. And, and there have been very many successes behind that. Um, what what um, I would say about examples in our industry, so Optimum has worked very well. So Columbia have grown it massively since, since they bought it. Um, for other businesses, I, I think it's it's too early to tell. You know, so Foodspring has only been in Mars for a very short period of time. Um, but but I, I think it is, it is safe to assume that the, the skills that people have of founding businesses and creating that look and feel aren't necessarily the same skill set that you need to, to run a multinational business of hundreds of millions of turnover, hundreds of people, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that the wise way of doing it is having a sensible transition. So finding an appropriate structure to, to, to maintain and incentivize founders for a period to, to maintain the look and feel whilst bringing in professional managers to, to complement them um, to, to deal with some of these other areas and then having a transition over time. Yeah, makes sense. A couple of questions just to finish off with um, for our time. We've had mentioned science and sport quite a bit throughout um, and there are a lot of other endurance brands out there. You mentioned High Five, of course, Enervit in Central Europe and, and others. Just wait, where do you put that in your spectrum? I've always found it a bit of an enigma. I, I read the science and sport reports every year. I mean, broadly, not, that, you know, they're Hey, I've never created a brand that big, you know, but ultimately it's not that big in the grand scheme of things. I just kind of wondered, no. you know, the size of the endurance market is not really massive. Uh, in, again, in, in the context of protein as the comparator. So where, where does that really fit? Can, is there more growth in endurance? Because more people are doing running cycling, but I don't necessarily see, and I've seen a, 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 an aligned growth in those brands and whether they really are relevant to an active endurance consumer so um I, I would i would say that growth is absolutely possible in those areas but they will remain a niche um because that they they will only endurance brands will only be relevant to people that do endurance activities and you know that that will never be a majority well, let's never say never it's unlikely in the short term that that will be a majority of people um, in any country, albeit maybe we all should do triathlons and, and tough mothers. Um, so, so that inherently limits it. And there is, as far as I'm aware, the proportion of people engaging in those activities who use supplementation is still very small. So that there remains a, a very big education exercise to go to have more people use the products. And the last thing also is that the unit cost of each of these is very small. Now, I don't know exactly what a, an energy, belt pack, energy gel pack costs, 
but it's relatively small and you only use a small number of them um, in any yeah. particular. So it, it's not going, it's never going to be an enormous category, but I think it'll be a solid one, a growing one, a profitable one, and one that is well worth being in, um, but it will never be the majority of the market. H hence the, the, the correct idea, I think, of having a separate endurance brand in your portfolio that addresses that market, but you need other different brands that address different consumer needs to get to scale. Yeah, I don't think there's really too many great examples, maybe more in Europe, but there's not many brands that have managed to position endurance alongside protein under the wrong, the, the, the same brand uh, and, right. and managed to have success on both sides of the coin. I just think again, it's, right. it's another, another very clear stereotype in our industry. It's just difficult to do. Um, so yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, last question, Gareth. Um, in terms of you, you've talked nicely about the context of the market. It's, I think it is a good time in terms of the increased sensitivity of consumers to health and wellness, which I think is important. In terms of the um, trends or traits or characteristics that will continue to, to, to fuel this whole environment, personalization as maybe a, an overarching trend yes. or a vegan as a trend or the model being e-commerce. There's a number of different ways that we could look at this, but I just wondered if you, if you would put one or two thoughts on the things that you believe will, will, will ignite further growth into, into this industry that you think will be in, in a few years time, absolutely, you know, prerequisites to the way people do business. Yeah. So, so existing trends that will continue to drive will be online, um, will be vegan, naturality, um, clean label ingredients, um, taste, you know, because <laughs> we haven't talked about that enough yet. Sorry, no. I've missed that for everyone listening, but no. uh, inquivably must go in there. You know, it's, it's no doubt. Yeah, and a lot of RTDs still leave a lot to be desired, if I can put it that way. Um, and so, so th those, I think, are, are existing trends. Personalization, I think, will be super interesting. We're, we're seeing that start in, in VMS, um, but absolutely it should come into to broader mainstream nutrition. You know, what, why, why rely on a, on a preset formula set up by someone in PhD when you can have exactly the right mixture of proteins, vitamins, minerals mm. for exactly what you want to achieve and how your body is, that will come. Um, you know, complexity about how, whether you do it through um, questionnaires, which are suboptimal or devices which have their own um, complexities, but it, it is coming for sure. Uh, easier to do in VMS than, than on proteins, but, but nevertheless, it, it will come. Um, and I think one other area that we haven't spoken about is cognition. Um, and wh whether that's the, the old dirty word of nootropics that people don't like using anymore, um, or mental enhancement, e-sports, um, or all of this type of stuff. You know, they, they love the, the body hacking concept in the States, which I think doesn't have quite so much name resonance in Europe. But, but that, that whole area I, I see doing very well, being particularly well suited to direct consumer and also eventually to personalization. So I, I think that area is, is a good one for growth. Um, and again, it's going to be another interesting one as to whether um, the people that succeed there are brands specifically focused on that area or to what extent existing brands can extend out. And I think as, as with vegan, it'll be a bit of both. But my gut instinct is on for that particular area, it'll be more individual brands like the guys at Brain Effect in, in Berlin, for example, who, who will have a great success and who will have more legitimacy with their customer base than the same product being bought from MyProtein.
but it's still very early days. Yeah, and, and, and formats, will it take the curve of starting off um, capsules, tablets, yes. um, supplementary eating forms? And do you just imagine it's an inevitable curve that even that becomes bars? It already is, by the way, brain bars, drinks yes. with the tropics or stuff. But yes. yeah, it just moves that way. Yes. There we go. The next big trend. I think people are already talking about it. Again, I think it's execution. It's finding the right brands with the right single-minded purpose who can, exactly. who can achieve that. So exactly. brilliant. Gareth, we could talk all day, probably parts two, three, and four, but um, thank you very much. We've got to stop somewhere. I don't think these things can go on too long for those listening. Um, massively uh, thank you for your contribution and insights. Um, so, yeah, great. We'll, we'll see you again soon. A pleasure. Look forward to it. So a big thank you to Gareth, not just for being the first guest, but for offering the quality of insight he brings. I think there's so much to reflect on that I can't imagine that it won't inform everyone who's listened. For me, Gareth has just a unique position within the industry. And with that, he's offered some pretty important views on the implications of sports nutrition and just how that affects all of us. I think the industry is changing, no doubt, and we are all going to have to adapt in some form. So if you like today's episode, please get involved, share the word, and get in touch. And of course, look out for the next installment. We will be back soon.